Hello everyone, and welcome to DisasterCast, where we discuss how to manage system safety and what can happen if you don't. This week, our focus is on medical devices and software. Specifically, I'll be discussing the Therac 25 accidents and interviewing software safety researcher Richard Hawkins. Both of these segments are a little longer than usual, so the show is in two sections rather than the usual three. The safety of medical devices highlights a fundamental conflict between the way different types of evidence are used in different fields of human endeavour. The field of evidence-based medicine places heavy emphasis on data from randomised controlled trials, aggregated through systematic reviews which compare the data from multiple large and well-designed studies. This approach is not perfect, particularly when all data from all trials is not available, but it generally works very well for drugs, where randomising and controlling are straightforward. Continued monitoring of drugs is also statistical, collecting large group data on efficacy and side effects. In contrast, the field of product safety engineering places heavy emphasis on data from the processes used to produce a product and the test and analysis of that product. This approach is not perfect either, particularly when human interaction is a key variable in the safety of the product, but it generally works very well for physical devices, where test and analysis are straightforward. Continued monitoring is somewhat statistical, but it also incorporates detailed investigation and analysis of single incidents and anomalies. Contrast again with the field of safety management, which places heavy emphasis on accumulated experience an understanding of the way organisations work and the way they become dysfunctional. It draws on methods such as case studies and action research from the social sciences. It works very well for situations where problems and solutions cannot be differentiated from the environment in which they take place, but it lacks authority on strictly empirical questions, particularly where numbers are involved. Medical devices introduce an engineered product into a hospital management system for the purpose of treating patients. Arguments about the right type of evidence are inevitable. We really don't know the true answer here, but there is definitely a wrong answer, which is to ignore one or more of the three fields altogether. Let's talk about Therac 25. Despite the widespread use of software in critical applications such as aircraft, rail systems, automobiles, weapons, and medical devices, it's actually very rare to find examples where fatalities can be directly linked to a software error. Many of the examples we cite when talking about software safety are not actually accidents in the strict sense of the word. They typically involve extensive property damage but no unintended harm to humans. Therac 25, on the other hand, stands out as a clear-cut case of software bugs leading directly to death. Like all accidents, the causes are not simple. As we talk about Therac 25, we will discuss problems with hazard analysis, hardware design, human performance, through life safety management, and incident reporting. All of these are enablers, 
systematic faults in a system that allowed a simple software bug known as a race condition to shorten the lives of five people. Therac 25, produced by a company called AECL, was a medical linear accelerator. Linear accelerators are one way of providing radiation therapy for cancer. Electrons are accelerated to produce a high-energy beam which burns away tumours, leaving healthy tissue untouched. The machine had three operating modes, depending on which accessory was placed in front of the electron beam. Field light mode, with no accessory and no actual electron beam, was to used to line up the machine into the patient. Electron mode used magnets to spread a raw electron beam to the right therapeutic concentration. X-ray mode used a metal target to convert electrons into X-rays and a flattening filter to spread out those X-rays. The existence of three operating modes created an inherent hazard. X-ray mode required a much stronger electron beam than electron mode, and field light mode required no beam at all. If the wrong accessory was in place, the patient would be zapped by a beam that was much too powerful. The logical solution to this hazard is to put in place hardware interlocks, which physically limit the amount of electron beam power based on the position of the accessories. For example, the highest power beam should be available only if the X-ray target and flattening filter are locked in position. This is indeed the way Therac 25's predecessors worked. Therac 6 and Therac 20 both used hardware interlocks. They were both computer controlled, but the automation was added to a physically safe hardware design. Therac 25, on the other hand, was designed from the bottom up to be computer controlled. Safe operation required correct operation of the software. The precise term used was software interlocks. Just for future reference, if you ever want to really wind up a safety engineer, mention as casually as possible, with a straight face, that your design is completely safe because you've included software interlocks. Once they've realised that you're joking and calmed down, they will explain that, by definition, a function that requires an active complex component is not, and never will be, an interlock. The original design for Therac 25 supported one procedural safeguard. The operator manually set up the machine, left the room, and then used a console to record the treatment details. The console details were compared to the manual setup, and any mismatch prevented the machine from working. At the request of the operators, though, this design was changed so that by pressing the Enter key, the manual details were copied into the console fields, removing the independence. Despite the fact that Therac 25 relied on software to be safe, the safety analysis essentially ignored the software contribution to hazards. This analysis, represented using a fault tree, included computer failure, but ignored software failure. For example, the event computer selects wrong energy had a recorded likelihood of 10 to the minus 11. 
If each of the 11 Therac 25 machines was used 10 times a day, this is a failure rate of once every 30 million years. Instead, between 1985 and 1987, there were at least six accidents involving this exact type of failure. There is no formal investigation report for the Therac 25 accidents, and some of them were never investigated at all. Most descriptions that you'll find of the accidents are all originally sourced from a 1993 paper by Nancy Levison and Clark Turner, and this in turn draws from a number of fairly informal sources. I've done enough digging to confirm that the Levison-Turner paper is consistent with reports closer to the time of the accident, but I'm going to rely on the updated version of that paper for all of the details that I provide here. The first accident occurred in June 1985. A patient was receiving radiation treatment after a lumpectomy, and they complained of burns from the machine. As their symptoms developed, including severe pain and paralysis, it became clear that they had received a massive radiation overdose, at least 40 times the normal therapeutic dose. AECL denies being informed of the accident, but their own claim that they didn't find out until 1986 is actually inconsistent with the lawsuit filed in 1985, which they did know about. The lack of a proper incident and reporting and investigation system meant that AECL, the FDA and other operators would only find out the full details of this accident after further accidents had occurred. Part of the problem was that manufacturers of equipment were required to report accidents to the FDA, but operators were not even required to report accidents to the manufacturers. The second accident occurred seven weeks later at a different hospital. The Therac 25 machine shut down with an error message, reporting that no dose had been administered. This was not an uncommon experience for the operators, who later reported that the machine gave them confusing error messages up to 40 times a day. The operator tried multiple times to restart the treatment, with an error message each time. Again, the patient complained of immediate pain, this time saying it felt like a tingling electric shock. Again, these symptoms developed into severe pain and immobility. This particular patient died several months later, due to the cancer for which she was being treated. Therac 25 was not responsible for her death, but it did severely reduce the quality of her remaining life. This time, the accident was properly reported to AECL, to the US Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, and to the Canadian Radiation Protection Bureau, the RPB. Other users of the Therac 25 were told about the problem, but not that a patient injury had occurred. Unfortunately, the technical problem was misdiagnosed. Therac 25 as well as lacking hardware interlocks, lacked a reliable way of recording faults as they occurred. AECL could not reproduce the problem, so they assumed that it was a fault in the hardware, 
Specifically, they thought it was a transient fault with the microswitches. After changing the software to better handle this suspected hardware weakness, they claimed a five order of magnitude improvement in safety. That's a hundred thousand times safer. And it's a pretty bold claim when you don't actually know what the problem is that you've tried to fix. It's kind of like saying, I think the odds are now one in a million, but there's a good chance I'm wrong. The FDA treated the problem as a voluntary class two recall. That sort of recall is typically used for temporary or reversible injuries, or where the likelihood of an adverse event is very low. They accepted the changed software as a solution to the problem. Now compare this to the RPB. The RPB asked for both hardware and software changes, including an independent system to verify that the correct accessory was positioned under the electron beam. In other words, they wanted a hardware way of mitigating against the specific hazard. AECL didn't make these changes, but the hospital who suffered the second accident did go ahead and follow the advice. They installed an independent hardware interlock, and so they escaped the future accidents. Now, this second accident had occurred in July 1985. The machine involved in the third accident received the software fix in September and then overdosed a patient in December. Initially, this accident wasn't even linked to Therac 25. They did report it to AECL, but they claimed that the burns on the patient couldn't have been caused by a malfunction or an operator error. So in the absence of information about other incidents involving Therac 25, and the hospital was explicitly told that there were no other Therac 25 incidents, they were unable to determine the cause of the accident, at least not until the same machine administered another overdose in January 1987, over a year later. So those are the first three accidents, and up to now we're still in 1985. In March and April 1986, Therac-25 killed two patients with massive overdoses. The physicist in this case at the hospital carefully investigated and reproduced, and so he managed to identify the true cause both of these accidents and of the previous accidents. To reproduce the software error, he had to get the operator to edit the prescription data very rapidly as if by someone really experienced in using the Therac 25 console. So to picture the underlying problem, imagine the software as five different robots, all working together doing different jobs. One robot is controlling the physical machine, making sure the right accessory is in place. Another robot is watching the keyboard to see what the operator types in. A third robot is keeping a checklist for the tasks to set up the treatment and so forth. All of these robots communicate by reading and writing to a shared blackboard according to a set of rules about when they're allowed to read from the blackboard and when they're allowed to write to the blackboard. If this set of rules is wrong, for example if the robot responsible for the hardware reads the dose from the blackboard 
before the robot watching the keyboard has written the correct dose down, then the software is going to do the wrong thing. Now, if Therac 25 always did the wrong thing, then someone would have noticed pretty quickly. So the problem was that the rules for writing to the blackboard weren't completely wrong, but they depended on how quickly each robot did its job. In particular, if the operator became very fast at changing the treatment parameters, then Therac 25 could end up with an energy dose that didn't match the position of the accessories. This type of error, where software can be correct or incorrect, depending on how quickly each part does its job, is called a race condition. So if you've been counting carefully, you may have realised that we've got one accident left to go. In January 1987, the machine responsible for the third accident malfunctioned again, this time killing the patient. The bug was at a different place in the software, but it was also a race condition. The fact that this was a different bug, but could have been prevented if the fixes from the previous problem were in place, tells an important story. Quoting here from the Levison-Clark paper, Focusing on particular software bugs is not the way to make a safe system. Virtually all complex software can be made to behave in an unexpected fashion under some conditions. The basic mistakes here involved poor software engineering practices and building a machine that relies on the software for safe operation. Furthermore, the particular coding error is not as important as the general unsafe design of the software overall. End quote. So in summary, mistake number one, building a machine that relied so much on the software. As it turns out, Therac 20 had the same bugs. These bugs, the Therac 20 bugs, are not famous. Why not? Because Therac 20 had hardware interlocks. Mistake number two, poor overall design of the software. If you're going to trust the software so much, then the software has to be trustworthy. It's pretty doubtful that software analysis methods of the time could have found the problems with the Therac 25, but it is certain that the software could have been designed so that it could have been properly analysed. A standard principle of safety is to design systems that are easy to analyse and easy to test. Mistake number three, believing that the design is adequate. The first and second accidents were bad, but they didn't actually kill anyone. Squarely in the causal chain for the deaths is the fact that the first and second accidents were not understood. Therac 25, as a machine, was not designed to properly detect and record its own failures, and AECL, as an organisation, was not designed to properly detect, record and diagnose Therac 25's failures. Even something as simple as a user group to share problems could have saved lives. There were only 11 Therac 25 machines installed, and yet operators didn't know about accidents that had occurred at other facilities. Mistake number four, 
thinking that the supplier here is solely to blame. AECL created an unsafe design with inadequate software development and testing, and they responded poorly to information about problems and accidents. The sheer size and number of things they did wrong highlights that any hospital which trusted AECL failed in their own duty to act as an intelligent customer. If you're buying a car, you have a reasonable right to trust that someone else is responsible for the safety of the car's design. If you're operating one of only 11 state-of-the-art machines for firing high-energy beams at patients, it's your responsibility not to trust. Problems with the design are a risk to your patients. Ultimately, the fixes to Therac 25 were driven by a cooperative user group established in response to the problems. Even if AECL didn't set up that group, good safety management at the hospitals would have established communication with other users anyway before the problems. Good safety management would also have demanded evidence of safety, not promises of safety. The Leveson-Clark paper is actually very easy to read and it's publicly available. I've put a link in the show notes. I'm speaking with Richard Hawkins of the University of York. Richard, could we start just by introducing yourself, please? Uh, My name's Richard Hawkins. I'm a research associate at the University of York, and I work as part of the High Integrity Systems Engineering Group in the Department of Computer Science. One of the areas of research I'm particularly interested in is the safety of computer-based systems. So the kind of questions I'm interested in is things like how we can develop software that's safe, but also how we can demonstrate to other people that the software's safe. Um, So why software safety in particular? Why are we worried about software? Well, it's an interesting question because software can't really directly hurt anyone. At the end of the day, it is just uh, mathematics, it's just logic, And from that point of view, it's never going to catch fire or explode or anything like that. However, what we do need to think about is what the software might actually be doing. Lots of software is used to control things like aircraft or trains or cars or even nuclear power stations and medical equipment. All the time, what we're doing is giving more and more control to software. So now we got the situation where if the software fails to do something that it's meant to do, like applying the the brakes on a car, or if it does something that it wasn't intended to do, so it administers the wrong amount of drug to a patient, for example, well, suddenly we're in the situation where software has the potential to do a lot of harm to a lot of people, and the consequences of software failure in those cases can be catastrophic. So this interaction between uh, the software and the system as a whole, whether that's the car or a train or whatever, that's really the key to software safety. In isolation, as we've, we've already said, you, you can't even really talk about software being safe or unsafe. We need to understand what the consequences of the software behaviour are 
on the rest of the system as a whole. So what about software that doesn't seem to have a system? It doesn't have a train or it doesn't have an aircraft. It just puts information up on a computer screen for me to make a decision. Does software safety matter there? So in situations like that, we would have to think about how that information was used. So an operator might be relying on that information to make decisions that affect the safety of the system. Even in situations where software is just providing information, it can be on a critical path to to an accident. So you're saying that software causes accidents by causing other people to do things or by other machines to do things? Exactly, yes. Could you give me an example of an accident we've seen where software has misbehaved and as a result something bad has happened? Okay, so one of the most high-profile examples is probably Ariane 5, which was a, a European rocket which was designed to take satellites into orbit. The maiden flight of Ariane 5 was in 1996 from the Europe spaceport in French Guyana. What happened in this case was 37 seconds after launch, when Ariane 5 was about 4,000 metres off the ground, the rocket suddenly veered abruptly and disintegrated in mid-air. Now, the cause of this accident was a software error that caused the engine nozzles to move to an extreme position. In In very simple terms, what happened was that one single item of data in the software was converted incorrectly from one value to another. And this alone was enough to cause incorrect signals to be sent to the nozzles. Now this rocket was unmanned, and fortunately no one on the ground was injured either. But it still highlights how even very small and seemingly inconsequential errors in the software can have very bad outcomes. It also tells us something about the nature of software failures. Unlike with physical components, Software doesn't deteriorate over time, so it doesn't fail randomly in the way that, for example, a light bulb on your car eventually will fail. Software failures instead are always due to some systematic error. What we mean by that is a mistake made in the way in which the software has been designed or implemented. And these systematic software errors will sit there waiting to be triggered, and if a particular set of conditions arises, then the software will fail. And given the same set of conditions, the software is always going to suffer the same failure. So I think you can start to see why it's so important to identify and remove these kind of systematic uh, errors in the software. If software always fails in the same way, doesn't that mean the solution's just to test the software, to make sure that we've tested everything it can possibly do, check that all of those things work correctly? In theory, what you're saying makes sense. Uh, unfortunately, to completely test the software, even in the case of very small um, bits of code, takes an incredibly long time. And actually, as soon as software becomes realistically complex, it's essentially impossible to exhaustively test all of the software. So if I can't test it, what do I do? So instead of testing the software, we need to make sure that we don't introduce systematic error into it in the first place. That means controlling the processes that we use to design and implement the software, but also analysing the software so we can understand the ways in which it might fail and what the consequences of those might be. Then we can start to do something about it. So if I'm not a software person, if I'm a systems engineer 
a designer of hardware, designer of electrical devices, a safety engineer. Can I safely just leave this up to the software safety experts to deal with? I'll do the hardware side of things. They give me software that doesn't fail. Definitely not. The most important thing that a safety engineer could do from a software point of view is to explain as clearly as possible to the to the software guys what matters from a safety perspective. So really, we should be thinking about software in exactly the same way as we would any other system component. It's really just something else that, um, if it goes wrong, could cause an accident. I think software is sometimes felt to be a bit intimidating for non-software specialists, and as a result, it can get treated as just someone else's issue. Actually, you don't need to be a software expert to understand and explain the role that software can have in causing an accident. It's true that you might not understand the detail of why a particular software failure might come about, so you might not understand the intricacies of the software code, but even if you were to treat the software as a black box, that allows you to start to go quite a long way. The more information that the safety engineer can provide regarding the potential role of software in causing system accidents, the better. This then allows the software people to develop software that behaves in a manner that is safe. You're a researcher in the field of system safety with, I guess, specialist expertise in software. What are the big open questions that you'd like to answer? I think one of the big challenges comes from the move towards more and more autonomy, where the human is being removed from the system. So we're now seeing increasing use of pilotless aircraft, what's often called drones, and of course driverless trains have existed for some time. Google and others are developing driverless cars, and even doctors and surgeons are now being removed from some procedures. What all of this means is that things that were previously done by humans are now being done by computers instead, and this raises a number of challenges. There are the obvious technical challenges, so the autonomous system has to be reliable, and often people talk about these systems being as reliable as a human. But the question is whether even that is really enough. Should we expect autonomous systems to actually be more reliable than humans are? And for that matter, are humans actually that reliable anyway? And there's also the issue of decision-making. In autonomous systems, we're often not just asking the computer to slavishly follow pre-programmed set of commands, but also asking it to make its own decisions on what the best course of action is. So how can we show that the autonomous system will make a safe decision in all cases and in all situations? And this is a very difficult problem. But there are also some more subtle issues to think about. So in a manned system, we often take a lot of comfort from the fact that there is a human involved. So even though we know that humans make mistakes, we also trust them to do the, the best that they can in order to prevent accidents. Now, I don't think that we naturally have the same level of trust in computers, even though, statistically speaking, they might actually be more reliable. So are you saying that if a driverless car ran into me, I'd be a lot less forgiving than if it was a teenage guy who put his foot too heavily on the pedal? I think that is perhaps the case, I, and I certainly think that the way the incident would be reported in the media would be a lot different.
I also think that if you were a passenger, you might feel that the fact that there was a human driving it might mean that they might take more action in order to prevent the accident than perhaps you would say a, a driverless car would. At the end of the day, I think that our ability to automate is always going to outpace our ability to assure the safety of that automation. So safety research, I think, is always going to be playing catch-up, but I guess that's also one of the things that makes it interesting. So I, I take it from what you're saying that you're fairly comfortable with the idea that we are moving towards more automation. It's just a case of trying to make sure that we at the same time develop our ability to provide evidence that that automation is safe. I think evidence is one of the key aspects of this. What we're really talking about is building up confidence in the computer system. And unless we've got the evidence to support the claims that we need to make about the way in which that computer system will behave, we're never going to get that confidence that we need in order to trust it. So I think being able to get the level of evidence that's necessary is really the key to being able to use to rely on these technologies. So in that sense, your job as a software safety researcher is not to provide warnings or to stop us using all the cool new toys. You're almost an enabler trying to make it safe, make it possible to start putting these cars out on the roads, the driverless trains, the improved uh, automation in our aircraft. Yes, a lot of these things are possible right now, but one of the things that's stopping them is that people won't accept them because they're not yet sufficiently safe. Only by being able to analyse, test and get evidence for these systems that gives us that confidence, we'll be able to use them in real situations. So if we can't do that, it is indeed an impediment to them actually being used more widely. That's it for this episode of DisasterCast. To find out more about this and other episodes, visit disastercast.co.uk. If you enjoy listening to DisasterCast, please tell a friend. They don't need to be a podcast listener. You can access the content directly via the website. The theme music for DisasterCast is from A Disaster Anthem by Eden Prayer.